Hooper now offloads. Oh, so close, still short. Blaubanga. There he is! He's over! Hi there and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We're two diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family-friendly and positive, so get involved. Get involved. Now, before we go any further, we have Rev joining us yet again. You're a regular of the podcast, basically part of the family. How are you, Rev? Yeah, I'm really feeling like part of the furniture. It's great. <laughs> um, you know, all the more opportunity to talk about rugby, so loving it. Even if it's uh, doubled my normal quota of New South Wales fans, I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Mate, it's it's okay. Well, I'm not sure if we'll ever convert you, but we can at least show you some of the good things that are happening. Actually, no, I'm not sure if there are many. Any good things I mean, if happening I'm, in New South Wales? If rugby. we're talking about last season, then or this year, I'm still on the fence. I've got a foot in New South Wales and <laughs> Queensland at the moment. Mate, subconsciously, you're still uh, New South Wales fans. You're wearing Sky Boy right now, That's mate. True. So, mm-hmm. part true. of a uniform. Blue. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mitch, or Mitch Rev Evans, where can people find you if they want to hear more of your dulcet tones and learn more about rugby from you? Dulcet tones? Gee, I'm sounding like Matt Durrant. Um, <laughs> Please get in touch with me at uh, Rugby Fixation on Twitter. Uh, that's where I do most of the um, discussions. Personal account at Mitch Evans ninety four. But um, yeah, pretty much just commented the Rugby Fixation one because that's where all the rugby chat seems to be. So find me there. Brilliant. Get involved there. It's loads of fun. And one thing we will quickly say: the intention for this podcast was for us to record on Sunday night. We put the locker room questions out, and thank you to everybody who did make their voice heard. We will be responding to them later this pod. Um, I just had some personal stuff happen, which meant that recording on Sunday or Monday wasn't an option. So this is the next best thing. Sorry about the delay, but we're here. We're excited and ready to go. So Mitch, why don't you take us through the socials? All right. We are on Instagram at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. We're on Facebook at the pick and drive rugby podcast page. And we are also at on Twitter at pick underscore drive rugby. So give us a like and a follow on all of those platforms. All right. Now, something really important. It happened a couple of weeks ago, but we had the uh, the Royal Rumble, which got in the way of it. So we have a Super Brew winner. Mitch, bit of a drum roll. Announce it, please. All right. I think for anyone who has been following along at home, Liquor Box has been up in the top three for pretty much the whole season. So well done to Liquor Box. He has taken out final top spot for the Super Brew uh, Trans-Tasman 2021. Well done to you, Liquorbox. And if we just look at the results from the final, after the final, we had two people sharing the yellow cap. So I don't even know how to say this. This Cis name. PT2. Cis PT2. And Vikings <laughs> took out the shared yellow cap on three points. So well done to both of you. And then Liquorbox has taken out the comp. So if we look at the top three, we had Liquorbox in first space, first place on 41 and a half points, fo- followed very closely by Rugby Sicko in second place on 39 and a half points, followed by Hodgy, who took third spot on 34.75 points. A very close competition. Thank you, everybody, for getting involved. And Wickerbox, please, please, please get in touch with us on our, preferably on Twitter or send us an email as well. What's our email address? Uh, pick, uh, pick, what's our email, Mitch? Can you remember? Pick and drive <laughs> rugby at gmail.com. Brilliant. Get in touch with us there and we'll make sure that we send your winner of you through. Oh, are they getting a trophy or is it engraved onto our shield? I think this I one. This one's the engraving. So Liquorbox yeah, will get his name okay. engraved on the shield 
okay, we've got cool. going. So you'll be recorded in the annals of history as winning that competition. Well done, my friend. All right, this evening. This evening, we're going to hit up some spicy news. We move to our Tasman wrap-up, then talking a bit about the Super W competition, which has been super fun to watch, as well as the Sevens, uh, Oceania Sevens competition that was happening over the weekend, and then hitting up the locker room. So it's a fair bit to get through, lots of spicy news. Let's jump on into it. Let's go. Let's go. Moving now to the spicy news, and why don't we start with the Wallabies? Because there has been some devastating news for us Sydney siders with the two-week lockdown. Good old Gladys has put us into well, not Gladys really, it was coronavirus. Um, we have lost the first test, which was going to be happening what next week, week after, who even knows? Um, and so that has actually been moved up to Brisbane. You should be cheering, hey Rev. <laughs> you know what? I was until the COVID lockdown hit here, and I'm like, you know, that's probably. You know, my fault for cheering on Twitter. I should have been a bit more humble. <laughs> so from my understanding of the lockdown, um, it is going to be for, what, three days up there. And, I mean, we can't make any assumptions, but hopefully it won't extend. And if it doesn't extend, then it's fine for the match on Wednesday the 7th. Yes. So the plan at the moment is get until um, 6 p.m. on Friday. Um, mm -hmm. If we can get through there, which we've had a pretty good track record with our lockdowns previously. Um then it should be free to go. But it is annoying because the um, tickets were supposed to go on sale at midday today. And obviously with the um, lockdown in force, they've put that off. So it's really hard to know what's going to happen in terms of, you know, people getting there. So let's make uh, an assumption. Let's say that there's a bit of a spike in COVID cases in Brisbane, not Queensland itself, but just in Brisbane. Uh, then you're that you're a rugby player. Mitch, you first. Where do you move the test to? Perth. Yeah. <laughs> do you think Perth would let someone from let, let the team come in from Queensland, which has just been locked down? Well, I think that's the, the problem we're going to have with all states is that in the current climate, they're not going to let no state is going to let any team in at the moment, but the Wallabies. So I think that removes some sort of concerns that the government might have that they are actually in a bubble and they're quarantining and they've got strict measures in place. France is still in quarantine at the moment in New South Wales, so they haven't been exposed to anything one would hope. But um, I think it really then comes down to which state's going to be able to actually put the game on and have the most fan engagement as possible. And I, I think Perth would be the, the front runner at the moment. Rev? Yeah, I'm probably leaning the same. Although, given they've already moved it from the SCG, I can't see them moving it again. I think the two options are either if everything gets really pear-shaped, it gets cancelled, or if it you know stays bad but not um, uncontrollable, there is a chance, I guess, they keep it in Brisbane but because the two squads have been in isolation, they could potentially do it without crowds. Mm. But we don't really want to see it to come that case. Hopefully the Queenslanders can just sort of get their act together, um, reduce those cases or, you know, really keep on top of those cases so that, you know, there's no risk of transmission and we can go back out in public um, without masks next Wednesday. Yeah, I really yeah, don't, um, I don't see, I don't see Rugby Australia actually moving in again. I think we'll either play it behind closed doors or it'll be postponed if it can. Postponed. That, I don't think they can even postpone it. It'll be cancelled. We'll, we'll cancel yeah. test one and play test two and three. Yeah, maybe. I just wonder, willing to give up that amount of money, I'd be pushing it up to Townsville as an option um, because they've got a good stadium up there. They saw from mm. recent origin that there's at least support for sport in general up there. So you think that they may well be able to get some buy-in. But anyway, let's keep on going and talk about some other Sydney-based news, which is Darren Coleman, current coach of the LA Giltinis, previous coach of Gordon and mm. was it Eastwood before that? Gordon Eastwood? No, Gordon and um, uh, Waringa. Waringa. 
Warringah, thank you, Gordon Warringah, um, has accepted the Waratahs' role on a three-year deal, which is great. Uh, supposedly, he'd been offered a two-year deal, and he was putting his foot down and saying, no, I won't do it unless it's three years, and he's now received that, which is fantastic. Um, Mitch, starting off with you, you're wearing sky blue. Are you excited about this appointment? Yeah, I am. I think it was the best option that the Waratahs had, the best person that they could have possibly chosen that was making themselves available to go for that head role, um, head coaching role. And I, I think they've made the right choice. If we look at some of his experience, so he's taken two shoot shield sides from sort of cellar dwellers down the bottom of the table, turned Gordon around very quickly, had a little bit more time with Warringah, but took both of those teams through and into the final of shoot shield and, and won it. Um, it goes to show that he knows how to turn, first of all, he knows how to create culture within a club and how to turn things around. But he also understands the shoot shield environment. He also understands NRC. He was the coach of um, New South Wales country for a few years as well. So he's probably out of the options we were looking at that came out. I think he's the best one. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do. Outside of Coleman, the only other person I would have really been excited to see named as the coach was Simon Cron. But from what I understand, he removed his name from contention at the last minute. I think he was never really in contention for it, from what I understand. There was hope that he would come in at kind of the 11th hour and put his hand up and say, yes, I do want this. But he was he was pretty happy with his coaching gig uh, over in Japan. Now, Rev, the current coaches, um, Whitaker and Gilmore, both have another year on their contract. What do you think? Do you think they're going to get paid out? Do you think that they'll come, they'll remain as a part of the team for some continuity? Or do you think it'll be a bit awkward for Darren Coleman to walk in with the previous coaches there under his uh, guidance and leadership? It's a tough call, especially with, um, I think, Gilmore in particular looking really sort of likely as a, a task coaching option. He was, seemed like he was adapting quite well to the head coach role. Um, my hope would be that they would stay in some capacity because they both can do a quite a good job, um, I think, with the Waratahs, especially with a different head coach. Um, if they can keep that group together, they should be really prioritising New South Wales first. So if they want what's best for the game and what's best for the team, they will all stay. But I can see that it would be awkward. And there is a chance that uh, Darren Coleman brings over some of his Giltini's uh, coaching group because that's filled with a few Aussies like Stephen Hoyles and... Um, I think there was someone else Adam that uh, was well. also one of the assistants. Yeah, Adam, Adam Fryer. So, like, two guys that are really entrenched in that, um, you know, New South Wales sort of mindset. They've been players and quite successful players at the club. So, I I wouldn't be surprised if they came and joined. But I'd, I'd hope that uh, Gilmore in particular stays because I think, you know, he, he was offering a lot towards the back end of that Tars season. Yeah, I think we also improvement throughout the in, in various ways throughout the Waratahs season, mostly because they were so horrifically bad that there was very little <laughs> to go but up. Um, and I, yeah, I think that Jason Gilmore in particular has a really strong connection with all of the under 20s players that he came through with. So there is a benefit to keeping him on if that dynamic between him and Darren Coleman can work effectively. But either way, as avowed. Tars, as an avowed Tars fan, Mitch is a bit more on the fence here. Bit of a <laughs> bit of a traitorous uh, bandwagoner, but that's okay. I think I don't know. Um, I'm I'm very happy to see this appointment, and I hope that there is a level of stability that this brings and sound judgments moving forward, which you can never trust with New South Wales rugby. 
but it's a hope. So moving forward, uh, the Super W competition has been kicking off, had a couple of rounds already, but unfortunately there's been some really significant news in that the uh, force have been forced to withdraw from the competition because of the border closures which have been put in place with Western Australia. And this was uh, very understandable considering the fact that these are not full-time professional players. These are people, uh, players who have families, they have job commitments that they've had to take time off on. And if they did stay for longer in the Eastern States, they would have had to go into the mandatory two weeks of quarantine upon their return to WA. So as disappointing as it is, it's completely understandable. So it means that for this upcoming weekend, the Western Force were meant to play the Melbourne Rebels. Um, actually, that was meant to be tomorrow night. Um, yeah, and tomorrow. that is going to be called off. Uh, and we'll have Queensland Reds and Presidents 15 uh, on tomorrow with the Waratahs and the Brumbies as well. So it means that for round three and then any potential finals places, they weren't aren't going to be available. Um, I actually watched the Force match Um against the president's 15 and i caught bits of the match against the western against the waratahs i really rate the force forward pack maybe it's similar to the men's insofar as they're the the center of the field the defense the ability that they have to retain the ball and actually build phase pressure upon the opposition was really really impressive um did it did you guys get to catch any of the forces matches over the weekend yeah, I, I saw um, the first game against the Presidents 15, and I thought that was a really tightly contested match. Um, although, to be fair, I think some of the Presidents 15 sort of stole the show, so I was sort of more interested in some yep. of their players. Um, yep. Like Hannah Lane was a, a real phenomenon at seven, and then uh, Jemima McCalman, she's had a bit of game time on the wing, and she, she was a bit of a freak as well. But, you know, you're right, the Force just had a really solid uh, forward pack, and I think if they're able to do all that hard work really well, um, that's going to lay a real platform for them when they do get to play. And it's kind of a shame they didn't capitalize a bit more in the first half where they probably could have got a few more points. But um, it's a real shame they kicked out of the competition. It shows the difference between uh, the men's competition and the women's, just in that in the professional comp, they'll find a way to keep them going. But with this case, they kind of pulled the plug as soon as they could, just given the situation. Yeah, it's tough. And it's every commentator I've seen who's been putting in some of their thoughts about this is completely understanding of the situation. Yeah. And it seems that all participants uh, aren't holding any grudges against the need for withdrawal by the Western mm. Force. So all the best for them and for the rest of the players in the competition. We will be chatting a bit more about Super W moving forward later in the show. Okay, Japan's inclusion in the Rugby Championship. Mitch, do you feel like taking us through this one pretty quickly, mate? Give us your comments and thoughts on this. Yeah, so for those that are unaware at the moment, uh, Sansa basically are looking at including Japan and Fiji potentially into the rugby championship come 2024 after the next World Cup. Um, this article that came out on Stuff Today or yesterday was just highlighting that both Australia and New Zealand are looking at the performance of Japan, particularly after their performance against the Lions, and really trying to work out whether they can commercially make it viable to join the rugby championship. It's, a, it's an exciting prospect. And what this article really highlights is that both Japan, uh, Australia and um, New Zealand really have a obligation to Japan moving forward for the next few years to actually play them a little bit more often and get their players exposed to see if, first of all, they can in improve their performance and be a bit more competitive, sort of like we saw Argentina in the first few years of joining the rugby championship. But then also if they can figure out how it's going to be 
commercially viable for them to come in. One of the big questions that I have that Rev, maybe you want to touch on a little bit more is, um, would Japan actually benefit from being a part of the competition, considering the fact that you have three of the traditional heavyweights of world rugby in a four-team competition, or five with Japan, um, with South Africa, with New Zealand, with Australia, and an Argentinian team, which really showed last year that they're quite capable of taking scalps as well. Um, would Japan want to come in when they would arguably be the weakest team in that competition? I think for this they would, only because the 2019 World Cup showed, um, I think, their strengths and their weaknesses. So obviously in 2015, they beat the Springboks as a bit of a surprise. But since then, the two times I've played, the Springboks won, I think, 28-0 and then 26-3. to So quite dominant performances, even though they don't have the you know sort of score lines they used to have in previous years. Um, the big challenge for the um, Japanese side is that 2019 World Cup, uh, Jamie Joseph, who was a coach, took all the players from that Sunwolves squad and spent pretty much the entire six months building up to it just with that squad training them. And so it was a completely different um, setup to any other world coach. It was a really luxury position to be in, um, whereas he doesn't have that in a normal year. So I think this is the natural progression. If they can stay in this competition, this is the kind of you know work and exercises they can be doing to try and stay that uh, level of competitive. Because uh, we saw some of their players in that Lions game. They're definitely up to the task. And I don't see that they're that much weaker than Argentina or Australia at the moment, mm. realistically. Um, yeah. I think if they get a bit more time, they'll, they'll be set. Well, why don't we keep on moving to an absolute cracker of a game, which was the English Premiership final, which was played over the weekend and saw Exeter, who would arguably the favourites coming into this match, get downed by the um, the coachless Harlequins, 38 to 40, with huge raps going out to player or man of the match, Joe Marler, who did one of the best post-match interviews that I'll ever see. Um, he's an absolute crack up. Do you guys listen to his podcast, the Joe Muller podcast? No, I didn't even yeah, know he had a podcast. It's freaking hilarious, man. He's like certifiably insane, but incredibly funny and down to earth and um, self-effacing as well. It's it's good banter and good chats and you learn a lot about different occupations. They just get people with different, different occupations and come on and just chat with them. Anyway, because um, the final, basically it was it was... 38 to 40, incredibly high scoring, puts paid to the idea that defense is optional in a, in super rugby and not in premiership rugby as well. But it was wonderful. Did either of you guys get to catch it or have some things you wanted to say about it? Mitch, I'll throw it to you first. Um, I didn't get to watch it live. I went and watched some of the highlights the next morning and it was a great game. It was really exciting to watch it. And I was really impressed with um, Michael Liner's son, Louis Liner. Um, I think that we've really un unveiled a, a potential bolter for for the world at the moment. There's three. There's a lot of talk on social media now around where his allegiances lie and where he's going to end up. He signed with um, Harlequins long term at the moment, but he hasn't actually. Uh, well, he's represented England in the under 18s and under 20s, I believe. But there's still a lot of talk around where he can, might be able to play his international career. He qualifies for Australia through his father. He qualifies for Italy and he also qualifies for England. So it's interesting to see what ends up coming from that. But apart from that, yeah, it was great to see um, the Harlequins get up and beat Exeter. It was um, very sort of heart and mouth kind of finishing at the end there where Harlequins got the try and were, were right ahead. And then a right off kickoff, Exeter came and scored a try and, and nearly stole their thunder. But um, yeah, it was, it was a great final. And really, I think it goes to show the premiership is a 
of an adequate level that would rival Super Rugby. Rev, yeah. how about you? I um, completely agree, especially that last point. I think these two teams would wipe the floor with um, the Super Rugby AU teams, to be honest. There's just a lot of international quality in there. And just, I guess, to touch on why Harlequins won, just experience as well. Um, Joe Marler's already been mentioned. He's, you know, a multi-cap England loose one of the best in the world at the moment, even though he's not on that Lions tour because um, he's sort of taken himself out of the running. But that Harlequin side, they're filled with players that are on the brink of international selection. And the English Premiership is one of those competitions that's it, it benefits you greatly to have players that aren't test players but are really good players maybe that don't play for one of the European teams or are just on the brink because there's so many gaps in the season for the Six Nations. I'm looking at that team. Joe Marler, Wilco Lowe, Alex Dombrandt, Danny Kerr, Marcus Smith, uh, Andre Esterhausen, Joe Marchant, Lewis Liner, and Tyron Green. They're all phenomenal players, a lot of them international players, um, but phenomenal players that aren't in the international setup. So they're getting so much extra game time than some of those Exeter boys and especially um, some of the players from, um, what was the other club, Sale, um, you know, that are getting players brought up. So... I thought that was really impressive, but the big talking point for that was that um, Luke Cowan and Dickey, the hooker for Exeter, got injured, and he's probably the front runner to be the starting hooker for the Lions. So mm-hmm. now they'll be watching that with bated breath. Yep, and I mean we'll get to some more Lions chat in a moment, but why don't we just cross the ditch or the the British ditch and head over to France and briefly talk about Toulouse's 18 to 8 feet of La Rochelle. So congratulations to Toulouse featuring the uh, Arnold brothers getting up over Will Skelton who was playing for La Rochelle. Have you guys seen Kelvin um, Cheslin Colby's absolutely incredible 50 meter drop goal first drop goal of his career and he punts it over in a freaking final from 50 meters out (laughs) it's just insane no i didn't say i'm not surprised i think he's he's up there as my favorite player in world rugby at the moment he he's just seems to be so humble seems like the nicest family guy but then can just do insane things on a rugby field that very few other players can do yeah um absolutely love to see him um how good would it be if he and Matsushima were playing in the same team on on, oh. on, on, on wings? They would just, it would be the most impressive attacking threat within any team. Um, anyway, cool. I don't think we should go into that in too much detail because we're already going for too long. The Lions Tour began with the first match and the defeat of Japan in a warm-up match in Scotland, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Murrayfield. Yeah. Um, Murrayfield, yep. And the big news, apart from the fact that the Lions won and Japan were very, very, very competitive, it was a good game, uh, was that Alan Wynne-Jones has been injured and is now out for the entirety of the Lions tour. Injured in the seventh minute, just from a uh, kind of clear out. I'm not sure what the specific injury is. Was it a wrist? Was it a shoulder? It's a shoulder. Anybody know? Shoulder. Shoulder. Yeah. Dislocated yep. shoulder at the time, but oh, I haven't heard exactly what... And Rev, you probably know, but what it was that's kept him out of the tour long term? Um, no, I think just that the shoulder's not going to be um, right for the tour matches. Yep. There were a few people saying that it might be back just in time for some of those last tests, but I think that's pretty pretty wishful given his age and um, you know how long it'll take to recover. Yeah. Uh, who else? Who was the starting number seven that got injured as well? Um, Justin Tipperick. Yeah, Tipperick, that's it. Yeah, Tipperick got injured as well. And I'm not sure, I think he's out too and has been um, replaced within the squad. So, yeah, that was I a. Mean, I just want to, while we're on that point, just mention it was quite interesting watching the game because I sat up and watched it live. And 
there was it for that first half, there was a fair few injuries from the Lions, and I was quite um I guess shocked at how easily some of their players were taking getting injured. I didn't think like Japan's a physical team, but they're not they're not bashers. They don't go out there and absolutely manhandle you. They're more quick and, and up tempo type of game. So I don't know. Amalaki Mafia is a bit of a mash uh, a basher. <laughs> Yeah, no, he is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Wouldn't want him running at me. But but overall, you don't think of Japan as an abrasive, um, hard-hitting team, sort of like the All Blacks or the Springboks. Um, so, I was a bit worried that they were. some of their players got injured so easily considering they're going to go over and play the Springboks at home where I was thinking if this trend continues, they could be without their first 15 by the time they come up to the first test. Yeah, uh, that's... Uh, let's just keep on going because uh, there's so much to get through. There is so much. Okay, cool. Let's, let's keep going with the Lions. We're going to we're going to um, the Springboks now, and they have just returned to training after a COVID scare with three of their players tested positive. Um, they had a bit of a temporary lockdown, but they're back into training, and uh, that's just yet another spanner thrown into the works. Who knows what will happen if a bunch of the players pick up COVID during the during the actual competition? It's this whole thing is just on like a tightrope at the moment. Not it's sure on a knife it's edge. all going to go ahead. It really knife is. Knife edge, tightrope, razor I mean, edge. The lines are due things. to arrive any day now in South Africa and the Springboks weren't training because they had COVID in their camp. So, for a little while there, it really felt like it was all going to be over before it even started. But, I, I mean, I guess we can all just hold our breath and hope in a few weeks' time that the first test does get to go underway. I mean, they're due to play the Lions. The Lions are playing the... Joburg, Job is that where the Lions are based in Joburg? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Selsh, yeah. who who are they sponsored by? Anyway, the Lions are playing the Lions this weekend to start the tour in South Africa. <laughs> uh, how good! Okay, let's keep on going. Um, I think what we'll do is just jump ahead to news which is breaking right now. Kevin Foote has been named as the Rebels head coach moving forwards and it's just been announced on Rugby Heaven. So he was the interim coach after Dave Vessels got sacked and they have ultimately done a worldwide search and selected the person that was already in the car park. So congratulations <laughs> to Kevin Foote. And um, um, another typical another side selection. note that you might not know, Ando, is Nick Styles has been brought back from Japan to take on the role of GM um, general manager of the Melbourne Rebels for next year as well. So former Reds coach Nick Styles. Yep, which is cool. very okay. interesting. Okay, good rugby well. brain. So that is interesting. Rev, what do you think of that as our resident Queenslander? Actually, I should have asked Mitch as well, but I'll throw it to you. Now. <laughs> yeah, um, look, Styles he sort of had an interesting tenure with the Reds just because he um, had the this rough job of coming after Richard Graham, and then I think they had the split coaching role. Um, which is pretty yeah. rare for the Australian sides to have two head coaches. So I don't think he got it all his own way. So it's good to see he's coming back into um, Australian rugby in a slightly different context because he's a really bright uh, man. He led Brisbane City really well in NRC and he's a great scrummager, um, both as a player when he played and as a coach. So I, I think it's a good call. And Kevin Foote, I'm, I'm excited for that for the Rebels. That's, you know, a, a nice... Um, a nice option to keep it in the family, I think, especially because the last three games it showed some signs of uh, improving. Yeah, it seemed it seemed that their selections were a little bit more logical. Um, yeah, just just progressive, moving them forward a little yeah. bit more. I'm sure there was logic to what Davis was doing because he's an intelligent man without a mm. shadow of a doubt. But just from the outside looking in, pushing Tamua out into twelve and. Um, 
I'm having a mental. This is my weekly mental blank. The number ten that they brought in, <laughs> Carter Gordon, um, yeah. bringing Carter Gordon in, in to start at ten just seemed to change their attacking shape a lot more. So my thought moving forward for the Rebels is how are they going to replace the effort and ball running danger of Marika Corumbetti, Corumbete. So we'll we'll see about that one, but. I think that's it for the news. We need to move on to the Traz Tasman. We haven't Let's discussed go. the Wallabies at all. Oh, so do we need to discuss We'll quickly the just quickly say Scott Sear has been. Do we? Scott Sear's injured. He's out of the um, the France series. Uh, Cam Orr from the Rebels has been called into camp today. And Matt Tamir is back in camp today as well. So hopefully we'll be racing the clock to play come test one in, a, in a, just over a week. All that's right. it. Let's move cool. on. That's it. Let's go. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap up Trans-Tasman now. So, it was a, a pretty horrendous uh, overall performance by Australian teams in the tournament. I've got... I'll, I'll throw it to you first, Ando. What were your overall thoughts on Trans-Tasman and the Australian performance? It sucked. They sucked. We sucked. And I really didn't enjoy the competition because we sucked so much. That's that's my opinion. <laughs> Rev? Um, I had that written down, so I don't want to repeat it word for word. Um, but no, I don't... <laughs> Look, I I thought it was beneficial for some of the individual players who had never played New Zealand teams before, uh, but I thought Australian teams as a whole were well under par. Yeah, and I think that's what we we've all we're all on the same page. I think every Australian rugby fan is that Trans Tasman was just an, an eyesore really to get through. By the the second week, we all sort of realised that this wasn't going to get any better, and there was one victory by the Brumbies in what round three that. They scraped through, but apart from that, it was pretty, pretty woeful. So, I guess I'll, I'll throw go back to you, Rev. Um, was this tournament enjoyable at all for the average fan? Um, I think for people that really enjoy watching rugby just as a purist and don't support a particular team, there were bits to enjoy because some of the teams really stepped up their attacking game. So the Waratahs and Rebels, for example, were much better in attack during Trans Tasman than they were in the eight competition. But for most of the people that I work with who aren't uh, rugby fans. It went from the Rugby AU where they were saying, oh, well, the Reds were really good this week. Like, I'll tune in and watch that. And, you know, a lot of them ended up watching the final um, to coming in on a Monday where they were like, oh, gee, another 30-point loss, eh? That must be tough. <laughs> and it just, yeah, it became quite clear that, um, I guess, Fairweather fans or people that weren't hugely into rugby um, found it pretty laughable that, you know, we'd support a sport that's going that poorly. So I don't think Trans Tasman helped in any case uh, for rugby. And Ando, what... What do you think Australian rugby can do moving forward to be more competitive? I think there I think we do need to play New Zealand teams in some way shape or form as a part of our annual competition. I'm not convinced that Super Rugby Trans Tasman is the way forward for that. Um, I also think that a lot of the issues that we saw from the poor displays of the Australian teams were just a result of some of the inherent or systemic issues within Australian rugby in general over the last few years. And so the poor performance can't just be put down to um, that the teams suck. It's actually no Australian rugby as a whole needs to be sorting out its pathway systems, the depth of players that it has, try to get more uh, sponsorship, try to find some more money to be able to keep the mid-tier players so that we don't have a bunch of youngsters going up against uh, quality New Zealand teams. There's a lot of bigger picture stuff in here that I think could be addressed. So it's a broad answer to a question that hasn't really answered it, but I do want (laughs) to keep... Them. I do want to keep playing New Zealand teams, but I think when you have a Waratahs, like just as an example, 
you have the Waratahs who are filled mostly with young players who really lack experience at a super rugby level in general going up against New Zealand teams which have 30, 40, 50, 60 super rugby caps amongst many of the players what not just the starting 15 um it's going to be a bit of a bloodbath and so we need to look at ways in which we can be getting our younger younger players more match experience at a higher level and to be retaining that mid-tier of talent which is consistently getting drained away like jack Maddox is leaving has there's just been news now that jack maddox is leaving the waratahs and heading to uh heading to france to play at pow and so that's another example of a good super rugby level player that we're losing because we don't have the money to keep them and the quality of competition to make them want to stay yeah rev do you have anything to add to that oh, look the only thing i was going to add was um with the players that we're dealing with at the moment, I think a lot of it just does come down to difference in experience. And these New Zealand players, even though they might not have been, um, you know, all blacks, so or we've got the same number of internationals as them, they're playing so much more club rugby and NPC and all the uh, competitions in between. And I went through a bit of an experiment, looked at um, Australia's 50 best players that are 25 and under. So I tried to make two complete um, 23s and a few extras of, um, you know, our players that are under 25. And looking at those players, only seven of them have uh, 50 Super Rugby caps, you know, the equivalent of sort of three and a half um, seasons of rugby. And six of those seven are Reds players, which probably explains why they're doing a little bit better than some of the Australian sides. Um, We've got so many talented young players and a lot of them in those Wallabies squads, but they don't have any experience. You know, a lot of these guys have played the equivalent of maybe one and a half, nearly two full seasons of Super Rugby. And given the COVID and, you know, sort of congested years, um, it's really not a lot of experience. I think a lot of these players probably just need another you know, year or two of these seasons to keep developing. And the big shame is that we don't have more experienced players like James O'Connor, James Slipper, or Matt Tamua uh, helping them out because um, each club really should have a few more players of that ilk. Mm. And it's a bit of a rare breed in Australia with uh, the lucrative overseas offers. Yeah. And I think if you listen to the Royal Rumble, what we chatted through last week, go and give it a, a watch or a listen if you haven't out there. It's, it's a great one. But one thing that we all agreed on is the need for NRC to come back, to have that level between club rugby and super rugby. So, Ando, I might throw this one to you first, and I haven't written this down, so it's a bit of an odd ball. So, give you a moment to think. But if we were to bring back NRC, what differences would you like to see from this format we had before? Uh, I would like to see it lengthened to make it a more meaningful competition by having more games and more opportunities for teams to develop throughout the season, not by a huge amount, but um, maybe one more round between the teams. Um, I would also like to see where possible um, different, I'm just thinking from like a shoot shield or an Australian rugby point of view, whether or not some of the clubs can be aligned to the NRC teams. Um, So you have a somewhat nature of a feeder system between those clubs, like funneling the players together. I don't know if that's really possible. Well, that's that's what it was meant to be. That is what it was meant to be. Yeah, I know, I know, but it it didn't happen because New South Wales rugby is a pit of vipers. (laughs) So um, I would like that to change. Yeah, well, if you think about it, who are the teams, um, who are the Super Rugby teams that are doing well currently or somewhat well? You've got the Force, you've got the Brumbies, and you've got the Reds. Who are the teams that, when the NRC was around, were actually using it as a development pathway for their young talent into the Super teams? Each of those Super squads. And so 
a lot of the issues I think comes down to that. So I guess those are my two points. Number one, extend the season. And then two, have a clearer funneling pathway system or funnel of talent from uh, Shoot Shield clubs or local local clubs into the NRC competition. Yeah. Rev, was there any changes you would make to the old format of NRC that we saw in 2019 if we were to bring it back next year? I think um, the format changes have been pretty well covered by Andrew. I think we need more games. Um, that they need to have some sort of continuity built. And that's the biggest struggle with the expenses that cost to run the competition and you know how little money we get from um, you know attendances and also streaming. But the thing I'd like to see more is just teams using the players as a um, step up. We, we've mentioned that Queensland did it quite well. I'm looking at the Melbourne Rising team. Um, not one single back that they used throughout 2019 is at the Rebels. So who were they developing that for? Like, where did all those players go? And the funny thing is, out of the forwards that are at the Rebels, Bonnie Farmasuli in the Wallabies squad. Um, Trevor Hosea was in the Wallabies squad. Matt Phillip is a Wallaby. Uh, Rob Liotta in the Wallabies squad. Richard Hardwick was a Wallaby. So the players that they did use actually you know, got some good development and it helped them out a great deal. But why are we wasting so much talent on players that aren't actually being used in the clubs. I think that's where they need to bridge that gap a bit better. Yeah, definitely. Well, if we move now to 2022 and have a look at what we think, I guess, the best formats for Super Rugby are, um, and we'll briefly chat through this. We'll run through quite quickly because, again, we did cover this in the Royal Rumble last week, but Model 1 is an expanded Trans-Tasman, so regular home and away between 12 teams. Top four teams at the end of the regular season make the semis, two semifinals, Winner of each semi-final goes through to the grand final with one overall winner. Now, that is um, the expanded Trans-Tasman. Next model we have is the integrated model where Super Rugby and uh, Super Rugby AU and Aotearoa are played independently of one another. A winner from each tournament. We then have a domestic season where teams play home or away against each team in the... Oh, sorry, after the domestic season. Each team plays the teams in the opposite competition. So, pretty much Trans-Tasman from this year. But the difference is that the points from Super Rugby AU and Aotearoa carry across into the international integrated season. Model 3 is domestic only model. So all Australian-based Super Rugby teams plus the Fiji and Drua play each other home and away. The top team automatically qualifies for the final. Second and third place team playoff for a second spot in the final. And then we have an Australian or a Fijian winner every single year. Model number four is the sevens model. So Super Rugby and Aotearoa played independently of one another. The results of each competition determine the seeds for the crossover. The top two teams from each comp playoff for the plate. The third and fourth place teams from each comp playoff for the bowl. And the fifth and sixth place team from each comp playoff for the shield. So I guess we've also had another... Well, we'll chat through those ones quickly first. Um, And you haven't had a chance to sort of explain or put your thoughts out there around which competition format you like the most? Do you, Which one are you sort of leaning towards at the moment? I freaking love the sevens model that you put forward. It's just fun. I love the idea of there <laughs> being these different... So, like, you still have Super Rugby AU and Aotearoa. Like, you still have the winners from those, I'm assuming. Um, would you have the Super Rugby AU champion and the Aotearoa champion, and then it moves into the sevens model? Is that how you're predicting it, Mitch? Yeah, I, I would, I'd say so, because you still need to have that domestic competition wrapped up. Yeah, cool. I think that's pretty So it's basically you have vital. the domestics and then it goes, the Trans-Tasman is it's essentially still Trans-Tasman, but within this uh, plate, bowl and cup 
uh, grouping. And I, I think that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's awesome. I'm super um, interested in this because it provides every like you're not going to have the Waratahs getting spanked by the Crusaders. It's just not. It's just not going to happen because they won't be. They won't be playing them. They'll be playing. Play, They'll just be uh, spanked by the Rebels, are... the Pacifica, and the Hurricanes. Hey, hey, hey! We live in hope. Okay, <laughs> we've got a new coach that'll make everything different. Um, despite the fact that supposedly coaches add very little to a rugby environment, but whatever. Um, so, <laughs> uh, when you look at this, I just think the sevens model is super interesting. It provides three winners. Maybe one of them will be an Australian team. Um, hopefully, more than one of them will be an Australian team. And it is just something that is different and could bring in interest. Plus, it's it's pretty easy. To understand like it's, it's not that complex um so i feel like your average punter once is explained once to them or they have a handy graphic like the one that you used for the uh rugby royal uh royal rumble sorry will just easily explain it so i'm i'm a big fan of the sevens model just because it's different to what i've seen before and i think a bit of outside the box thinking might be what australian rugby needs at the moment yeah and one thing i thought I liked about this too is it also adds spice to the domestic competition in that like this season, we saw that the Rebels and the Waratahs were pretty much out of finals contention come the second or third last round of the year. Now, with this sort of the seedings going into the Trans-Tasman comp, it actually gives them something to play for. It doesn't It doesn't mean that they can write the rest of their season off and just do the best they can. They have to try and play off to try and make it into that next tier, the bowl finals, as opposed to playing in the Shield. So... Um, yeah, it adds a little bit more spice to it, in my in my opinion. Um, Rev, did you have anything you wanted to say about this one? I think just since that uh, Rugby Rumble, I think I've come more into the Sevens model. I was a bit on the fence before, and I was leaning, um, I, I think, to the integrated model where we got to verse every New Zealand side. And I still really do want to verse every New Zealand side. Like, as a Reds fan, I'd want to make sure I'm versing, um, you know, all all five Kiwi teams, but I think this model does give the best mix of um, easy to follow. It's fun. You get to verse all the Australian teams and some of the Kiwi teams, but you also have a better chance of being in a final, which is pretty important. I think um, just at the end of the day for, you know, our rugby fans that might not be super ingrained into it. They could look at the end result and be like, Oh, cool. We had two Australian teams in the top four. That's respectable. Well, that's good. Um, but it doesn't automatically give them a home final. Like we could still have a Crusaders versus Chiefs final, which you know would be deserved. So I, I do think that sevens model probably does provide the best mix. Yeah, cool. Um, now another format that's been suggested comes to us from good friend of the pod, um, Nelson Dale from the Draft Rugby Podcast. Now he put this up on Twitter yesterday, so definitely go and let him know what you think around this. We all think it's a great idea. So he's he's put together what he's called the champions. Let me get the, the right words up. So, uh, Super Rugby Champions Cup. So, you play Super Rugby Aotearoa and Super Rugby AU in their own formats prior to this competition starting up. So, pretty much like that sevens tournament, you have Super Rugby AU and Super Rugby Aotearoa independently of one another. Then, similar to the sevens format, you have the seedings from the finals or the final placings of Super Rugby, the d- domestic competitions determine where the teams place for this Champions Cup. So, We've got tiers and then we've got pools. So if you go across, the first pool would have the winner of um, well, the winner of Super Rugby Aotearoa, which would be the Crusaders. There, so they're the top of pool one and the top of tier one. Um, and then you go across, and depending on where the teams 
finish, they get put into different spots. But he's also included two, the top two teams from the Japan Super Top League, as well as a team from South America. So he's included the Haguares and also the LA Giltinis, which we assume would win the MLR this year. Um, pretty interesting idea. Something a little bit different. It's more of a global competition as opposed to just trans-Tasman. What are our thoughts around this one to start off with? Rev, why don't you kick us off? I think the biggest win for this one is um, financially. I think if you're looking to expand the market and try and get people invested, there's obviously a massive um, success story out of the MLR. Um, the Americans have really taken to that. And I think in large part to how well that's been marketed by the people behind it. Um, there's always highlights on Twitter and on YouTube, um, on Instagram. It's it's everywhere. So I think there'd be a lot of eyes on that to see how they stack up, especially if they're competitive. Americans love winning. So if they can see these guys against, you know, the best Australians and Kiwi, they're going to love it. Um, and then obviously the Japanese market is saturated with money and viewers. They're the prime market to get into right now. And that's why discussions um, have been about trying to get them involved in the rugby championship, about trying to get them involved in club rugby in some capacity. Um, so I think that'd be great. And if you've got players like Samu Karevi coming back um, for Santori and he's versus the Reds, who wouldn't want to see? Like that, that is a big sell. Um, this idea does a really good job again. It, it's a bit like that Savage market. You get a good mix of playing um, other competitive teams, but you also get a pretty good chance of an Australian King of Final. So um, there's a lot to like from that. And what were your thoughts around this one? I don't think there's a huge amount. Yeah, I don't think there's a huge amount that I really need to add to it from what Rev has said. I like it. I like what it offers, bringing the American market, bringing the Japanese market, while still having um, a an engaging competition, even if the Waratahs are still going to get pumped in whatever pool that they're in. Um, I, I, I like it. You also just get that mixture of, um, like I mentioned of the international flavor from a marketing or a broadcasting perspective, but also just from a play style perspective too. We'd also get some really big names from Suntory and Panasonic if they are the top two teams moving forward. Like you'd have some um, Australian expats that are playing over there coming up against some of the Australian teams, Australian super rugby teams that have had a bit of common uh, faces and a bit of spice into it as well. Uh, so I think there's a lot to like within this and I just wish and hope that this can get the eyes of somebody at RA or Sanzar and <laughs> actually not Sanzar but RA and really just add another option into the mix moving forward, although we're getting a bit late in the piece now. I just wanted to say one quick a, thing before we move on. Said. Oh, what were, you, what were you saying? Sorry? I'm done. Oh, you're done? Cool. Um, <laughs> the only fear I have around the sustainability of this competition is the travel involved. And particularly in a COVID climate at the moment, I one thing that I would love to see with this format would be to host it like a mini tournament in different countries every year. So if we host yep. one year, say Australia host it, and then all of the Australian teams then get to play at home with their home fans, then the next year you go over and you play it in New Zealand. So the New Zealand teams then play at home and they play mm. against their home fans. Um, with the fact that it's mostly Australian New Zealand teams, it probably needs to alternate between the two. You also you would expect that the new, the um, American team would have to come and be based here and most likely the Japan team as well. So I think that would be really cool to be able to go over to, to come and watch all of the different teams from all over the world, come and play the Waratahs or the Reds or wherever at their home grounds every second year. Um, and I think that would just add a little bit extra flair to it. Um, did anyone have yeah, anything else they wanted to throw up? Yeah, what we oh, yeah I was just going to add to that. The big seller would be if we could get um, the players of those Japanese teams, say they play the competition, if that makes them eligible to play for the Wallabies because they're playing in Australia, 
that would be a mass sell because there's your Sean McMahon, Simon Karevi in. They can stay with that club and still represent the Wallabies. So if that's you know some sort of weird uh, wording to get into the formalities of um, yeah, yeah, that'd be a great. Well, what about some of those Japanese players that haven't been capped yet by Japan? Maybe we could like include them as sneaky selections as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. Surely, a few um, yeah, a, a few Australian grandparents a lot that we can uh, claim. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, I think we're done for Super Rugby Trans Tasman. I think everyone's happy to see that uh, wrapped up and and gone. And hopefully moving forward, we can see something exciting from uh, both New Zealand and Australian rugby that they pick something that's going to be engaging for the fans, but also a little bit more competitive than the 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 year that we saw this year. So is everyone happy for us to move on to the next next segment? Yep. Let's go. Cool. Let's go. I am super excited to talk to you now about the Super W competition because I'm going to be very honest, I have not watched a large amount or really any of the women's competition uh, over the last couple of years and I have made a distinct effort now to watch as much of it as I possibly can within this competition and it is good, it is fun, it is entertaining and there's some really really good quality rugby on offer as well. Um, So I'm not sure if I was surprised. I don't think I was surprised. I just didn't know what to expect. And so my level of enjoyment was really, really pleasing coming into watching these games. Now, Rev, you've watched a decent amount of the Super W competition so far. A few games, a bunch of the minis, that type of thing. Um, any, Any takeaways, any comments, any people that were standing out to you that you wanted to throw out to the crowd? Well, yeah, first I just want to touch on what you said. I, too, haven't watched that much of it previously, and I think partially because of its exposure. So we should thank our um, our new rugby overlords, um, mm-hmm. Stan Sport, uh, Ros <laughs> Kelly in the mix there, doing the uh, the Lord's work covering that. So yeah, it has been really enjoyable to see all the games. Um, you know, Even the ones I haven't been able to see live, I've been able to go back and watch yeah. uh, either the full thing or the minis. And I've been really impressed by the caliber of players, especially, I think, um, the teams have a really good knack of getting it to the wingers. And it seems mm. something the men really struggle with is um, play seems quite unstructured with the guys where everyone's trying to get out. These girls are doing such a great job of getting it to the wingers and their finishing capabilities are unreal because normally what they've got is a whole heap of the seven superstars on the wings and they're kind of showing a lot of the other players that might not have played as much rugby um, just what real pace and power looks like. Like Jemima yep. McCalman, um for the presence 15 has been unreal and players like Mahalia um, Murphy and Maya Stewart, they've been unreal for New South Wales. So I think, you know, just seeing some of the caliber of these players, one of the best draw cards they've got is that they come from a wide range of backgrounds of sevens league AFL. Um, some of them are netballers, you know, like they've described all these amazing athletes from different codes. And I think you can get a lot of buy-in from that. It's like having a marquee player like Israel Flau at the AFL and NRL. If you've got someone that's played in other codes, you're going to bring people across. So I think that's been one of the nice things watching this is firstly just the diverse mix of talent uh, from a lot of the wingers and the back rowers, but also just there's so much skill that you might not see um, in a lot of the other rugby I watch. I was looking looking at the ladder right now. We've got the Waratahs on top on seven, Presidents 15 on six, Brumbies on five with the Reds on five as well. Force who have now withdrawn on four and then the Rebels in um, on one point. And so it's fascinating to see the Presidents 15 with their upset win or upset draw with the Brumbies. Um, 
was no, they got a win. They got a win, didn't they? Yeah, they uh, beat the Brumbies. The Brumbies. It was yeah. a draw against the. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, they were just. They've been incredible. The thing I've loved about the Presidents' Fifteen is um, they've hardly had any game time together as a squad. Uh, they've basically just been cherry-picked players to form an extra team for the competition, um, named after the president of the Super W Women's Association. Well, Super W, is that correct? Someone, Seika, I believe it is. Um, and she, uh, the team has basically recognised, or maybe it's in the style of play, they are not as dominant up front as some of the other teams that they're facing. Their scrum hasn't had the time together and doesn't have as much strength as some of the other teams. But what they're doing incredibly well is they're standing upright and in tackle and getting an offload to create that second phase play and then playing with a lot of width and basically attacking teams on the edges, not trying to beat them up up front because they're recognizing they don't have the continuity and the ability to do that, but they're playing around the fringes and getting so much uh, traction in doing that. And I'm just loving the fact that other teams are having to modify what they're doing to counter the strength of the President's 15. I think the President's 15, you're right, they've been a real um, highlight of this competition. But I think just looking at that table, it's really hard to go past New South Wales women. I think they're um, just... A bit of a league above because at the start of competition, I probably would have thought the Reds are the second favourite. And even though the score, you know, was relatively close in the end with the consolation try, the New South Wales women just completely tore them apart. Um, a, a lot in part to Maya Stewart, who was their right wing. And I just think that team, you look at their back row in particular, like Piper Duck, Emily Chancellor, and Grace Hamilton, that's a pretty star studded um, back, back row to be able to pick yeah. from. And they've still got other players on the bench that, you know, are chomping at the bit to get in there as well. Like, I've been really impressed with how they've sort of come together. And I think the draw that they were sort of forced to take from that um, cancelled match with a force is the only mm. thing stopping them from looking completely dominant on the table because they're they're definitely the team to beat. And a nice, I guess, um, salvaging touch for all those Waratahs fans that had to see the men suffer this year. This can be the team they get behind. Yeah, we've won something this year. We're not completely loot. <laughs> we weren't to well, we've undefeated won all year. year. We've won a match. Yeah. Let's see if we can get some silverware as well. Come on, the women. Let's go. Yeah, they're doing well. <laughs> Mitch, uh, you had some thoughts or some questions that you wanted to raise about this competition? Yeah, I think the biggest letdown of Super W this year was just the unorganization of how the competition was set up and that it took so long for Rugby Australia to actually announce what the plan was, let the teams know what they were going to be playing in, that they played one round home and away and then they've gone into this camp in Coffs Harbour and they're playing the rest of the, like, as a tournament there. Um, it it was just, it seemed really rushed and put together without any sort of thought to how um, the fans were really going to follow it or be able to be involved in that kind of thing. So, I think for me moving forward next year, first of all, I would really love to see them um, embrace the game and and view it as a, I guess, equal level with the men's so that we play at the same time. Now, if we're going to be playing, the plan is that next year, the Fiji and Indrua will join Super Rugby AU. And there's also talk that there's going to be a female, a women's team that are going to join Super Rugby AU as well. So they'd probably replace the um, Fiji, uh, the President's 15. Now, I'd love to see the women's competition mirror the men's competition played at the same time, but maybe in reverse. So, when the Waratahs go up and play the Reds in Brisbane, the Waratahs women and the Reds women play in New South Wales. So, then we're playing at the same time. Fans know, like, the the, the ladder's the same, the draw's the same. 
we all play at the same time or not maybe not necessarily at the same time but then fans can actually get behind and watch their the team as they progress throughout the year and the other thing too is whilst it's great to see the sponsors that have sort of come across and um, being displayed in Super W this year, it's the same sponsors for the men. I'd love to see the the women sort of viewed as a separate product to the men and on an equal standing. So they had their own sponsors as well that they could be um, on the jerseys and things. It's not just the same jerseys, the men's, it's a little bit different, different sponsors, that kind of thing. I think they've gone to show this year that the level of rugby is good enough. And when um, with Stan coming on board, we're actually as fans able to engage with it more now because we can see it. Yep. So yep. just more room for it to grow next year. Yeah, I think some of the earlier comments praising the Stan Sports overlords needs to also be echoed here. I mean, the easy accessibility of Super W on Stan Sports platform is just fantastic. You've got the full match, you've got the mini, you've got the highlights packages available for you. So depending upon your availability or activities over the weekend or during the week you can still catch up in whatever format works for you and still get the results for the games um i personally with what you were saying then mitch i'd prefer them as like curtain raises for the super rugby matches so let's say that the reds are coming down to sydney and they're playing the tars um somewhere in sydney uh say Bankwest or shock horror at the scg <laughs> then you can get there early and know that you're going to see super w team play i just feel like that um that devalues the women's game a little bit it makes it feel like it's not actually the the product that it should be or it's not the focus that you're actually there to watch the men and you get the women's on the side because they did used to do that but if you're watching if you look at the crowds that they're getting at the super w now they're actually quite substantial and if you look at the crowds that they had at the state of the women's state of origin on the weekend that was packed out and that was sold. So, um, the NRLW doing really well with it and, and moving forward as a product. Um, I just don't want it to be seen as not the same value as the men's. And by doing that, you sort of, in some ways, you devalue it in that the, the women have to then play at sort of four o'clock to be able to finish up by the time the Super Rugby comes on and for the men to be able to get on the field and train and warm up and that kind of thing. So, I don't. I just don't want it to be taking anything away from the girls. I hear that. I hear that. Um, Rev, any quick comments before we move on? I think, yeah, you're right to say that they need to make sure that it's um, targeted to the women getting not just a attack on, that they're actually, you know, being seen as their own product. Because you're right, it is tough. Um, even the games where they've had the curtain raises, um, if you're getting to Suncorp at, say, 7 o'clock and you're going to say that till 9.30 at the end of the match, it is tough to expect people to get there at you know three thirty PM or whatever time it is to, you know, watch all the women's match and then stick around. So I think it is fair that we move, um, you know, a, a bit of a mix of uh, having them at different venues. And I like Mitch's idea of having, you know, if it's New South Wales versus Reds, one in Brisbane, one in New South Wales. Um, but also, I think mixing it up a bit. Like, why can't the men be the curtain raiser, and then we finish <laughs> with the women's game afterwards? Oh yeah, um, I like that. Yeah. And, and that, that just shows that it's not all, um, you know, we're here for the men and are oh, great. Uh, we're supporting women as well. It, it has a bit more authenticity, I think, to make sure people are actually sticking around and watching those women's games because they're, they're great value and that's what people are missing out on. The only other thing yeah, I, I wanted yeah. to quickly throw in there was just around memberships and, and ticket administration that if you were playing it as a, at home but alternate to the Waratahs, you could then have a membership for the Waratahs that lets you go to the women's as well. So 
I know as a Waratahs yeah. fan, I would actually go and watch the the Super Women play, the Waratahs women's play as well if I could bundle that in with my membership. Now they are already doing that in some regards, but it's a separate membership this year to watch the women's, and then they've and got it- options to actually um, donate to the women's cause, which I think is great as well. But yeah, if you could sort of bundle them together because they're all being played in Sydney. Um, when the men are home and then when the women are home, I, I'd get behind that. That's awesome. And I'd be able to follow the club through both forms of rugby. All right. We do need to keep going because we've been chatting for ages tonight. Lots of lots of good things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Let's jump straight into the Oceania 7s without actually having a break or a pause. So that was played over the weekend. And um, I'll quickly run through the ladders. And let's just get some brief comments from both you gents about this because the results weren't amazing for the Australian team. So <laughs> for the men, we ended up finishing third out of four. So you had Fiji come in number one, won all six of their games, finished on 24 points. New Zealand won four, lost two points of 18. Australia won one, lost four on seven points. And Oceania lost five and finished with five points. Moving on to the women. We finished second in a women, which is good. Um, New Zealand won six, lost none on 24 points. Australia, three and three for 15 points. Fiji, three and three for 15 points, but we had a better points differential. And then Port Oceania got absolutely spanked. Um, <laughs> lost all six games, six points, and a minus 145 points differential. So, Rev, let's jump across to you first on this one. How much of this did you catch? Any takeaways? Uh, yeah, watched all the games that Australia played in. And I think big takeaway is uh, the men's team is zero from eight against New Zealand. So that's really... Um, oh, yep. I shouldn't swear on this, but yeah, <laughs> sorry, we're positive. Um, positive. positive. That's really positive. not good. Not good. That's really not good. <laughs> um, the women's team, they're one from eight um, against the New Zealand side. So again, it's not ideal, but it's better. I would say that the men's team, the one shining light, if uh, we call it that, is that their points difference was only negative 23. So the games that they did lose, they're not getting thumped. They're sort of in that ballpark. And we saw that that squad, they're just missing a few of their key players. Um, they're pretty injury prone. So they really need to keep uh, Lewis Holland and uh, Lockie Anderson fit for the whole time. Yeah. And if they can keep uh, Dylan Peach, who's gone to the Waratahs, that's very exciting. And uh, Dietrich Roach on the field, that'll be really good. Because they're probably the, the standouts for me. Um but yeah, just the one win, and it was against Oceania, which is pretty much just the worst Australian players. Um, it, it's not a good turnaround, and they kind of need to pick that up before we get to the Olympics. Yeah, um, I watched a little bit of this, uh, saw some highlights and watched it on replay. And the one thing I, I do want to say to be positive is that some of the losses by the Australian team were a lot closer than they than, than it really initially looks like. That first game against Fiji, they hang with... They hung with them for most of the game and only towards the very end did Fiji actually um, take that lead. So, in some ways, but in saying that, that was also Fiji's first game of sevens in a long, long time. So, as an Australian team, we probably haven't prepared... We've prepared as best we can in this COVID conditions, but it really does go to show that we are a little bit of a step behind. Um, I was quite impressed with the Oceania team overall, considering they were thrown together at the last minute. Um, they pushed some New Zealand and Fiji a lot harder than I thought that they would. And I was really impressed to see Mark Nwonga Nidawasi from the Waratahs playing for the Oceania side. And it was a bit of a revelation for me. He actually suits the sevens format really well. Some of those crazy mm. offloads that he goes for actually came off quite well in this game. 
it doesn't he he wasn't as um obviously found out in defense as he does is in the 15s game so maybe that's an avenue that he should be pursuing a little bit as well that playing a little bit of sevens um on the side to to push for maybe the next australian competition for for the sevens yeah. Well, if I could just touch on the women as well, I think Chloe Dalton has used every bit of bandaging in Australia. <laughs> she, um, yep. she played her heart out, but um, she by the last few games, she's looking like the walking mummy. So um, <laughs> good on her because she's a tremendous athlete and someone I hope the um, you know the Wallaroos can keep in there. But um, just yeah, bit of a struggle I thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you wonder how her body's holding together and whether or not she'll be able to keep playing at this level for an extended period of time. She's just come back from what back surgery as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe she just hasn't had the preseason or the opportunity to build up that conditioning prior to this competition. So uh, all the best for her moving forward. Hopefully she does recover from those tweaks and uh, issues that she obviously picked up. Uh, I think we need to keep going because we need to head to possibly the most important part of the pod, the locker room. So let's go. And finishing up the podcast, we're in the locker room. Uh, the sweaty, smelly, but <laughs> enjoyable stench of, you know, the rugby fans that we see online. So let's get involved <laughs> and see what our fans have said today. Um, firstly, we should uh, hit up Jason Sherman, who got really involved in our Rugby Rumble as well, because he brought up that Quaid and Willie G could be playing for the Wallabies. They're both in Brisbane and both looking pretty fit. So, Ando, what are your thoughts on that? I think they are looking pretty fit. They've kept in really, really good nick. Um, no. <laughs> just, just no. Uh, yeah. Look, maybe if... Oh, you know what? No, just just very simply no. Um, I was thinking maybe Quade Cooper since we've got a few injuries that are coming in in our number 10 slot, but they haven't been training with the squad. They don't know any of the calls. They don't have the connection with any of the players they'd be playing inside or outside of. Um, maybe in an advisory capacity or to support um, some specific skill-based areas for some of the players. Like we know that Willie Gania did some work with Tate McDermott uh, during a COVID break last year to help him out with some of his things there. Like, cool, yeah, okay. Skills-specific coaching, fine, but not actually playing for the Orbeez, no. I think I think Lovely. Jason's having a bit of a joke here. I think you're taking it a little bit too seriously there, Ando. I don't really think he considers either of <laughs> these guys viable. But um, I would also say if we're going to go down that track, we're going to bring back a player like Quaid or Willie G. Digby Yuani's been playing for the um, classic Wallabies and he's looking pretty fit and raring to go as well. So might as well throw him in as well. Give him a bone. <laughs> and if we're on that track, Stephen Moore's been playing club rugby as well. So might as well bring him mm-hmm. back in hooker. Why don't we just play the classic Wallabies against France? They might get a better outcome. <laughs> I was going to say, at the moment, we've got nine caps in the hookers so Stephen Moore brings that tally up quite significantly yep. that could be I think you're onto something Mitch yeah um, bring him in in the locker room we're going back to Lincoln Adler who got in touch on Facebook and asked uh, have the Wallabies jerseys gone back to a more traditional gold color of the 1991 era if so how good the yellow looked terrible so Mitch what are your thoughts on the new jerseys they did get a bit of an upgrade yeah, so they've gone back to the was it 1999 I think it was that they've gone the, the one they did a, a poll of last year um, yeah. the classic long sleeve gold jersey with the yellow collar. Um, that's the color that they've gone with this year and it looks really good. I'm really liking the look of it. It looks even better with the purple Cadbury on the front. Makes me yeah. feel like eating some chocolate. Um, but yeah, no, I'm loving it. I think it's great. I'm a little bit disappointed that it's the same 
um, actual cut and make of the 2019 World Cup. Like, we're two years past that mm. now. South Africa's had an upgrade to their jersey and we're still wearing the exact same cup. A little bit disappointed there. Yeah. Would have liked to have seen something different, but I love the colours, so... It, it does look just a little bit more uh, refreshed and quite, you know, pristine. So I'm keen to see it in action and with the players, but um, I think it is better than the 2019 version for sure. Yeah. Um, following on from that, Kurt Vesper asks, who's in your match day 23 now after all of these injuries? Also, how good is the signing of Darren Coleman as the new head coach for the Tars? So Darren Coleman does get brought up a little bit. Um, so that is a great signing. We've covered that already. But um, Endo, you didn't get to join in a rumble. Obviously, we named a few players in our 23s before the injuries hit. Are there any other players that, you know, we selected that you think, you know, we've overlooked? Who's in your 23 or some key players that might be in that first game against France? Uh, Ned Hannigan. Ned, Ned Hannigan will be in there. He, he's in the squad, Rush right? back in. Oh, let's get him right <laughs> back in. I love it. How good would Ned <laughs> Hannigan be back in that squad? Oh, yes. Um, look, to be honest, I don't have my 23 in front of me right now. Um, I think from an injury perspective, I would... The, the major one that I'm just so cut about is Izzy Parisi being, being out. Yeah. That's the big issue for me. Um, since we don't have him in play, I'd be looking to have... Um, uh, look, you're going to have Ryan Lonergan in it. Uh, oh, I was waiting so, for it. Yeah, I we, was like, how is he not started? Nick first White's first out. Game. How are you not starting Ryan Lonergan over Tate? Come <laughs> Can on. Can you imagine if Ryan Lonergan started? My heart would just explode out of pure joy. Mm. Um, or so if he comes on and kicks the, the winning goal. I, I think that's oh. more likely. Yeah, the, no. Comes on the... off the bench for his debut, <laughs> t- scores a tie, kicks <laughs> the winning goal over. from 50 metres. Ando's head explodes. Uh, it's just going to happen. It will happen. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so obviously Ryan, Ryan Wanigan's in inclusion is really significant. I kind of hope Jake Gordon doesn't come back from injury in time to make sure that Wanigan does get his first cap for the Wallabies. That's a big thing. Um, but apart from that, I mean, uh, from looking at some of the socials for the boys, Fuiti Katu seems to be tracking okay. I'm not sure what injury he's meant to have, but he's looking pretty healthy and fine in all the socials. Taniela Tupo did another jump scare of him today. <laughs> they are obviously rooming together. So check out Tupo's Instagram profile if you want to see some of the fun there. Um, but to actually answer the question, Who's in my match day 23 now after all these injuries? Well, I don't think the injuries change a huge amount except for the 10, 12, 13 combinations. Um, obviously, you'd be going Tate McDermott as your starting nine. Then at 10, it'd be Noah Lillisiu. And then 12, probably Hunter Paisami, unless you're putting Fakedi in at 12 and then um, Fakedi at 12. out at 13. Maybe, maybe Fakedi at 12, or you have like Ire Simone or Len Nikitao mm. um, in either of those 12 or 13 positions, depending upon where you have Paisami. So I'm not seeing actually a huge amount of changes because Paisami is still available and he can swat in between 12 or 13, depending upon if you want to choose Ikitao or Simone. Um, I don't really, even though I mentioned Fakedi, I'm not sure he'd actually mm. get a start. Um, maybe in game two, depending upon injury returns and that kind of thing. That sort of ties into what Jason Sherman replied to that comment, which was uh, perhaps more importantly than the match day 23 for the first game, who's in the game uh, game day 23 for the second test match. And I think just to cover that, there's 38 players in the squad. So, you know, we're going to use 23 for that first one. My understanding, just in terms of the numbers, not every person in the squad will probably get a cap. So you'd probably put the eight bench players on from that first game. They'll 
get a starting role, you'd presume. Mm. You'd get seven other players that, you know, either might have started the last game or were fringe to start the last game, put them in there, and try and keep a bit of that bench the same as well. So realistically, I think 16 of the players from that um, uh, the second match will probably have played in that first match. They'll just have a different role, whether it be a starter or bench player. So it'll just come down to who the next seven best players are. So I think if you look to the Rugby Rumble, um, between Matt, Harry, Mitch, and uh, my teams, we've probably named 30 players. So I'd, I'd say it'd probably be the 30 we've selected. I don't think there's any uh, coach in the Wallabies that's smarter than us when it comes to decision-making. Is that no. fair to say, Mitch? Yeah. No. Fantastic. No, no idea. We're pretty good. Yeah. We're pretty yeah. good. We're on top of it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we'll use that to segue to uh, our Twitter questions because the locker room got filled with questions uh, from both platforms. So Glenn Phillips got in touch um, and said, with all the talk of a second-tier comp in Australia, I haven't heard much about the lack of tribalism. As loyal as I, as I am to the Queensland country, that's not a club that has a following. The second-tier comp needs to meet the standard and attract viewers, so tribes and marketing is critical. And I think we mentioned that a bit before um, in terms of you know trying to attract members. But, Ando, do you see that as an issue? Do you think it is hard to buy into these NRC teams because they're not a, a typical club? I think so, and that's where I think you need to get the the next tier down from what the NRC is trying to address to actually have a sense of buy-in and a sense of connection with these manufactured teams which are being created. I remember um, my mate Dave Chilton was commenting on the Royal Rumble as well, saying the same thing, that nobody cares about the NRC. Nobody, they don't have fans. Well, I feel like in some way for the good of rugby, the, the local competitions need to recognize the importance of the NRC teams and try to not inherently like promote them and take away fans from their own base, but say, hey, these guys who are our team players are being a part of the NRC, get involved and watch them as well. Mm. And so to try and create that connection between the clubs and the manufactured NRC teams, because Glenn is totally right. Like, Queensland country isn't a club. It's like it's almost like the Welsh regions when the Welsh mm-hmm. um, teams restructured and went into their regions-based approach. That was a massive, massive problem um, because of the tribalism of a lot of the local Welsh clubs. Um, and I think what we're going to see here is somewhat similar. So there needs to be a really distinct effort made by RA to try and work with the various state um, associations to bring those clubs on board. And that's going to be a big challenge if that second tier comes off. So that's what I think we'll all be keeping a pretty eager eye out for. Can I just um, say one oh, quick just... thing before we move on? Yeah, that? I think in. one thing we need to do with the NRC is really uh, pick a rule and stick to it. So one of the things that they tried to do when they originally started was that tribalism thing by particularly in Sydney with the four clubs that they made, they pulled different and um, shoot shield sides together and, and said that we're picking our players from there. But then Rugby Australia came in over the top and allocated Wallabies players or ex, um, extra squad players who weren't playing for the Wallabies into that. The, like there were some Brumbies players that got allocated to the North Harbour Rays who don't play their Super Rugby for the Waratahs. And it just sort of, it muddied the waters a little bit. So I think what we need to do is really stick with the theme. So if we're going to go with Queensland Country and, Queen, and Brisbane City or New South Wales Country and, and um, Sydney City, Players can only play for those teams if they hail from that area and there's no exceptions. I think there would be enough talent in the shoot shield that has some connection to the country to make a pretty competitive countryside. Um, same as the, the other players who come from the city only play for the city. If, you, if that's where we're going for, 
then we we go for it, we stick to it, and we don't make exceptions. You can't come and play for the country if you didn't grow up in the country. We just need to do to create those rules and stick to it because we do that, we muddy the waters, and it becomes really sort of messy. Just as you said that, that makes me think: could it work as a state of origin concept? Because Harry Wilson is um was born in New South Wales country in Gunnedah. Uh, Lucan Salako Lodo and Isaac Rodder, they're both New South Welshmen. But then you've um, got no players to play for Queensland. They're all New South Wales players. Well, <laughs> all, all those Queenslanders are down in um, Canberra and over yeah, in Perth. So exactly. the, it, it could weaken the other teams. But yeah, I, I do like uh, the idea and they do need to stick with um, one particular club because we saw a lot of players move between city and um, country depending on who it suited at the time. And I will say and one other quick lit- thing. So I don't want to go oh, yeah. too long, but I just wanted to say with the NRC, I think it will be more competitive and more followed if we bring it back now with Stan Sports. So if we go back to when yeah. NRC first came in, it was a stream only option with Fox Sports. It wasn't actually shown. They showed one game around on the actual Fox channel. You had to have a separate membership on top of your Fox subscription to be able to access the NRC. And most people didn't do that. And so then it became this product that wasn't accessible. It wasn't front in, in front of you. It wasn't promoted. It was sort of just done and put to the side. So I, I think Stan and Rugby and, and Channel 9 would come in with a new NRC and really push it and drive it. And it would be front of mind. I think we need to play it as well outside of Super Rugby and outside of Club Rugby so that we can get those players coming through the system. Um, and then you will get that tribalism. We don't want to be competing with the products we already have. If you've got the NRC trying to compete with Super Rugby or trying to compete with Club Rugby, of course, it's not going to be successful. Don't try and compete with an already small fan base. Put it on afterwards and that's when you can get that tribalism developed. Yeah, 100% agree. And and that actually leads pretty well to um, what Craig said on Twitter. So at Belomba, he got in touch and said, what exactly will um, Darren Coleman's job be? Will he be in charge of the roster? And how long will he be given to win Super Rugby? Um, which could be a bit of a stretch. And what does success look like? So I, I do like the ties in that idea of is he in charge of Picky's own roster? Because we've seen, you know, players sort of, you know, get asked to move on or it might not have been, you know, the best of the specific head coach. So Mitch, I might keep to you on that for a bit. Um, I presume Colin's going to be in charge of his roster, but what does success look like for the Waratahs next year? Let's say, assuming they're playing 13 games. What does success look like? Um, if I'm sitting in New South Wales rugby boardroom, I think success to them looks like winning the comp. They obviously think that they can win the competition within two years because they offered it initially. And they would only pick a player who they, uh, a coach to come into that role who they thought was going to be successful. And they've given him two years to do that. Now he's pushed back rightly and said, I need three years. That's ridiculous. I can't do. I can't turn this club around in that amount of time. I need that three years to be able to get that. So I would say yeah. a board member would be sitting there thinking that they will be competitive next year. I, as a Waratahs fan, don't think we'll be competitive next year. We might be middle of the table second year in and maybe pushing for mm-hmm. it at the end of the third year. That's might okay. maybe, but that comes down to Darren Coleman getting complete ownership of the roster that he gets if they do the exact same thing that they did this year and and don't allow the coach to choose which players stay and which players go and which players they can spend money on and contract then it's just going to be more of the same yeah no i I completely understand that and and i guess just as a quick response if they're playing 13 games how many wins uh, would it take for you to be happy i guess with how the waratahs are going 
Oh, look, to say happy would be like 50%. Um, yep. So between like six, six, let's just say. Yeah. Oh, I know that's not exactly 50%, but um, that would be happy. Realistically, three, four, between yep. three and four um, is what I'm expecting because I'm not seeing any major signings. I'm not seeing any major changes, which is telling me that the Waratahs are going to be at this point uh, inherently different team next year. Um Show us that you signed a couple of locks, one more quality prop, um, and maybe a couple more backline players, a better wing option, and a then you're giving me some hope. A wing, a wing option. Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean, I'll avoid the opportunity to crap on Alex Newsom because the uh, draft rugby boys have that one covered. But <laughs> I'll, yeah, we just need a couple more quality players around the field and then... I'm, I'd be looking at 50%, but at this point, no. All right. Well, I, I think I'm in agreement with that, you know, three or so wins would be a much bigger improvement and a step in the right direction. But yeah, obviously every team wants to be winning more than they're losing. So that's, you know, I guess the the final goal for these teams. Um, we might wrap up the look. Oh, there was, sorry, one more bit from Glenn Phillips. She got, uh, he got in touch again saying, uh, how do we think the Southern Hemisphere refs will go with the uh, Lions teams? Because they're in charge of a lot of the uh, comps over there. I'll just cover that quickly. The New Zealand uh, referees are not giving out red cards. So that's going to be a very interesting decision to see how loose they make that. Whereas the Aussie refs are very trigger happy. So I know Nick Berry's in charge of one of the um, that, box yeah, first, first Lions matches. The first one, yeah. So that could really set the tone for you know how involved these teams get with rucks. We saw that the Lions pretty much didn't get near a ruck against Japan. So whether that's just because they didn't want to show their hand yet, which would be understandable. But I think the refereeing having a different, um, you know, nationality referee for each game will be very telling if the refs don't have a bit of time to sort of communicate and um, collaborate before the games kick off. I will and say what I the... imagine what would happen with that is this world rugby will be governing what they and setting the standards and the minimum expectations of a series like a Lions series. Um, so I imagine that they've been given all referees that are refereeing this test series would be given as a minimum set of guidelines and saying this is the framework we're working to trans tasman really looked like there was two different frameworks there where new zealand referees started at yellow and worked down whereas australian referees started at red and worked down so when there was no mitigation they stayed on red whereas when new zealand start on yellow and then they have no mitigation they give a yellow because they haven't started at red so that's where the in inaccuracies come or the differences come i would imagine that they'd be going into a camp leaning into this tournament and then saying this is what we're working on this is how we as referees want to approach um the high contact this is how we want to approach and referee the breakdown the scrums the lineouts, that kind of thing so i would imagine there'd be a little bit more consistency in this line series than we probably saw in trans tasman and I think mitigation could be the word of the year. It's been thrown around a lot. So the referees have a big job, I guess, to try and um, use their judgment. And this is the toughest part of being a referee, but use their judgment so that they're following the letter of the law, but they're also making common sense calls, you know, and calls that actually go with the flow of the game. Um, that might wrap up the locker room there. So um, thanks for covering the questions for me, guys. You uh, asked those a lot uh, more succinctly and accurately than I could have. I think, um, you know, the fan base for the pick and drive is obviously getting some good questions in. So I might let you guys wrap up the uh, the podcast. I don't want to take over completely. 
Mate, you will day by day take it over. So thank you. Um, look, everybody, thank you so much for getting to this point of the podcast. It has been absolutely wonderful doing it and getting back in the saddle after myself not being involved because of the Rugby Royal Rumble last week. So on the bench, I was benched. <laughs> I was behind the scenes doing the pretty pictures and stuff like that, mate. So uh, it, was, it was good fun. It was good fun. So thank you, everybody. Make sure you get your questions in for the locker room next week. There is so much rugby that is going on. Please make sure you check out Stan Sport and get involved. And finally, I know we saved it right to the end, but thank you very much to the Rugby Heaven crew for the cheeky shout-out they did to us last week. Um, That was a lot of fun to hear us uh, named on the Rugby Heaven, and I thought it was artfully worked in without it being an obvious shout-out. So thank you very much. Mitch, how did you feel when you saw that come up? I actually missed it. I missed it. So um, I got, I was preparing for the rumble. There was a big, big thing coming on. So I was preparing for that and um, got a few messages from some people that said, hey, you just got a shout out. So I went back and watched it and it was, it was very cool. So yeah, thanks, Roz. Thanks, Morgs, um, Shawnee, everyone involved. It was awesome. Thank you. We've got to get Googs on here, mate. He, we do. He'll be the next person we hit up to get on. And Drew Mitchell. Yeah. All right. Did, I imagine he's got some stories to tell. Yeah. Well, keen. All right. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much, guys. Have a a wonderful evening. Bye.